0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times Podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of international correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. This week, we'll be hearing from Paris and our correspondent Lara Marlowe on the aftermath of the French election and the challenges facing Emmanuel Macron. As Nicolas Sarkozy told him yesterday, now the difficult bit begins. And Rosita Boland reports on her visit to Laos, where the international NGOs are working to track down and dispose of up to 80 million pieces of live explosive ordnance. A still-killing legacy of US bombing during the Vietnam War. First to Paris and to Lara Marlowe. This weekend's decisive victory of Emmanuel Macron over far-right Front National leader Marine Le Pen has been greeted with a sigh of relief across the country, but also across Europe. Uh, But Macron's only jumped the first hurdle. Now he's got to try and govern. First, appoint a government, then to try and ensure a parliamentary majority to back him. The elections for the National Assembly are on June the 11th. Lara, in Paris uh, in particular, I imagine there's a collective smile on people's faces. There's been a real nervousness that the polls might be getting it wrong, uh, a la Brexit and Trump.
1: Yes, very much so. In fact, uh, Paris gave Macron his highest score. He won something like just about 90% of the vote in Paris. So there is relief, but there's also apprehension. Uh, Will he end up being like François Hollande, basically uh, inadequate as a a president? And everyone is waiting to see uh, who he will name as his prime minister. We should know probably next Monday, the 15th of May. And secondly, uh, well, also the cabinet, the, the other ministers he's going to appoint, the um, June elections, as you said, June 11 and then June 18. It's an, a two-round election. And the uncertainty surrounding this parliamentary election is just as great as the uncertainty surrounding the presidential election, uh, which is unusual until now. the the country has almost always given the uh, newly elected president a majority in the National Assembly. Uh, So uh, it's it's just really hard. There's contradictory information, actually. Les Echos has a study, the economic newspaper, today showing that Macron should be close to an absolute majority. At the same time, uh, a poll on the day of the election showed that 60% of voters did not want to give him a majority in the National Assembly. So we, we don't know if it will be a balkanized National Assembly with four main factions, um, the same as the four um, leading candidates in the first round of the presidential election, or can Macron get a majority? If he can't get a majority, uh, an absolute majority, which would be 289 of 577 seats, perhaps he can get a simple majority, in which case he could then get enough uh, deputies from the Socialist Party and from Les Républicains, the Conservatives, to arrive at the 50% line. But it's, <laughs> it, at this stage, it's really reading the tea leaves. Um, something very important happened today, um, Tuesday. Manuel Valls, who was, of course, Prime Minister, who was uh, Macron's boss, uh, said on RTL radio this morning that he wants to stand in his usual constituency of the Essonne, sun uh, south of Paris. He wants to stand on the République En Marche ticket. Now, En Marche was, of course, the movement that um, brought uh, Macron to the presidency. He changed the name yesterday. They changed it to République En Marche, which is a bit long for a party name, not very snappy, uh, but that's the new name of the party. Vaz wants to stand on, um, on Macron's, uh, ticket. Uh, and. <laughs> This was greeted rather coldly by the officials at En Marche because Valls and Macron really didn't like each other. They, they were in a very competitive relationship. But the Socialist Party really took it badly. Um, they more or less said good riddance to him. Uh, they said he can't be a socialist anymore, and to which Valls replied, well, the Socialist Party is dead. And as we speak, the Socialist Party is meeting to agree on their platform, um, the the Hamon Action. Hamon, you remember, was their candidate in the first round of the presidential election. They want to ally with the um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's far-left people and the ecologist uh, and even the communist to um, create a very left-wing opposition to uh, Macron. So basically, between the socialist. And the Républicains, the conservatives, they're divided between those who want to work with Macron and those who want to be in opposition against him. So those two parties are still trying to thrash that out. And then the other two parties who did well in, in the first round, the Front National, uh, the extreme right, and La France Insoumise, or France Unbow, the extreme left, they, want, they both claim that they can be the main uh, opposition against Macron. Uh, so it's all very confused and a bit uh, anxiety-creating for people who who are staking a lot of hope on Macron.
0: Yeah, I- indeed. And I- in like uh, the uh, En Marche movement, the representation of the, of the Front National in the um, National Assembly is, is is virtually zilch. I think they have two seats at the moment. So exactly. I- they would have to dramatically increase their, their numbers.
1: Uh, well, they... They think they can get that what well, they're hoping to get about forty seats. Uh, you need fifteen seats to have a parliamentary group, and because uh, they have Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, who who has a, his a, a little micro party called Debout la France, uh, France Standing France, if you like, and they hope that he will get a group and they will get a group and they, that, that the two groups can then form a block. But at, at the moment, that's really pie in the sky. Um, Marine Le Pen. Did relatively well in. Um, she did. She did very well in in northern France and eastern France, and those are the two regions where they would hope to gain a lot of seats.
0: But the, but she wasn't getting uh, overall majorities.
1: Uh, in those regions, she was. I mean, some there were areas in, in northern France where she got up to 70% of the vote. Um, Brachet, the little, the, the tiny village that I had visited in, in the La Haute Marne in eastern France, gave her 89% of the vote in, in that village. So there are areas which are really solid bastions for the Front National. Um, they will win seats. Uh, the question is, will they get a parliamentary group? Will they, Will they pass Fifteen, probably, yes. Um, Will they get to their objective of 40 seats? That's more doubtful. Marine Le Pen doesn't know herself whether or not she will be a candidate, because, um, for one thing, she would lose her immunity as a member of the European Parliament. And as you know, she's involved in a financial scandal for having used EU taxpayers' money to pay her party workers. So she doesn't really want to lose her EU parliamentary immunity, because then that puts her in difficulty with the French police and and judges. Uh, And the other thing is that if if she stood for Parliament, won a seat, and then didn't even get enough deputies to have a group, uh, she would be there for, for no good purpose. There, there's really no point her sitting in the National Assembly. So she's, she's weighing her options at the moment. And Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, the, from the far left is also trying to decide whether or not he should stand for in the legislative elections. In any case, they, everyone has to decide by May 19th. May 19th is the cutoff date to declare your candidacy.
0: And just like En Marche changing its name, uh, the Front National is going to change its name.
1: Yes, it is. My my hunch, and I don't really have anything factual to base this on, is that they're going to call themselves les patriotes, or the patriots, because she's, all through the campaign, she was saying, we are the patriots, we are the patriots, we are the patriots. And they want something fairly neutral that won't remind people um, of their historic origins in Vichy, France, and, and the uh, Algérie Française movement. So, um, yes, they'll change their name, and they, they may change leaders. Um uh, You know, when you have a 39-year-old president, uh, Marine Le Pen, at age 48, starting to look old, and um, they have a a solution who would be Marion Maréchal Le Pen, her niece, who's only 27 years old and one of... two uh, Front National deputies in the National Assembly. And she is a much more orthodox uh, Front National line. She's much closer to her grandfather, Jean-Marie Le Pen. Uh, She would have led the presidential campaign on those hardcore bread-and-butter issues of immigration and Islam. And she she's very angry with with her aunt Marine for having um, started all this nonsense about leaving the euro, which is one of the, the main things which lost her the election, because the french do not want to leave the euro three-quarters of them want to stay in the euro
0: now the just to go back briefly to uh en marche um the party is talking about putting up 577 candidates uh, including now uh, mr vals most of them the vast majority of them are completely uh ingenue new to politics and uh, how are they going to get on
1: Mm. Well, actually, Vaz, they haven't accepted his candidacy yet. Um, the en masse official said he hasn't applied. He has to apply like everybody else. So he's got 24 hours to do it. I have, I have no doubt that Vaz will be a candidate. Um, their the criteria for candidates are renewal. Uh, and by that, they mean that half of the 577 candidates have to be political novices. They don't want career politicians. Uh, they want parity between men and women. In other words, half of the candidates have to be women. Uh, they want... Political pluralism, so they want people from different political backgrounds. Probity, you cannot be a candidate if you have any kind of a, a criminal record, and especially if, you, if you've been involved in dodgy finances, because the French are really allergic to that after this uh, presidential campaign. And you have to promise that you will support the program of Emmanuel Macron. What they don't want is a majority like uh, François Hollande had, but which was riddled with uh, what they call fondeurs or rebels. Uh, they don't want people being elected as deputies on the en marche ticket and then suddenly saying, well, yes, but I don't quite agree with this policy or that policy. You've got to support the president. So those are their conditions. Uh, you're right, Patty. the people, French people support, they, although they, they dislike politicians in general, they tend to like their locally elected officials in particular. And that gives an advantage to the outgoing deputy from Les Républicains and the Socialist Party, uh, who, who are the vast majority of deputies, of course. And, you know, some of them will be reelected just because people know them. And our marsh's biggest difficulty is that they, their, their candidates simply won't be known. So they'll be campaigning very hard. Another problem for them is money. Um, the, the established parties have big treasure chests, uh our Marsh uh, has only Let's see, they, they, they brought in €13 million euro during the presidential campaign, uh, which was more than they expected. And Macron has taken out an €8 million euro loan, but candidates will have to finance their own campaigns. So that, that really needs uh, devotion to do that. I mean, one of the reasons, aside from the fact that, that to legislate they need a majority, but another reason that they're very, very keen to take away candidates from Les Républicains and The Socialists, is that the system in France uh, finances parties according to the number of votes they get. So every vote that Almash takes in, they'll get a euro for their party finances. Uh, and that's, that's very much needed by this new party. They're going to h- hold a, a founding Congress um, this summer. So th- th- that's what's at stake for them.
0: Thank you, Lara. Uh, we'll be back talking to Rosita Boland about her visit to the forgotten gem of Southeast Asia, Laos. Landlocked Laos is one of the world's few remaining communist states and one of East Asia's poorest. It's a population of 6.4 million and a GDP of just uh, about $12 billion. Uh, It's not on the tourist map, but it's a very beautiful country. Rosita, you were there to look at the work of NGOs clearing mines. But first, can I ask you a bit about your impressions of the country? It's It's a place that you were in once before. Has it changed much?
2: I was there 15 years ago for a month traveling around and it was a, a, a lot edgier place 15 years ago. Uh, I remember arriving in um, a place called Van Vieng, I came on the bus from Vientiane and a bus had been hijacked that day on the road by rebels and as I arrived into the village it was being washed off in the river. And 14 people were killed in that um, attack, including two Swiss tourists who were on bicycles and they were caught in passing fire. So that was my arrival in Van Vieng was seeing blood pouring out of this bus in the river. So all my other trips in Laos at that time were taken um, with buses and convoy. And when I went on to Luan Prabang, the bus I was in wouldn't let anyone stop even to go to the bathroom. They were just so anxious to get there and that we would all keep together. So it has changed in that regard.
0: There's no there's no insurrection going on, there's no uh, political opposition even really. these days it's a much quieter place.
2: Not that I was not that I'm always aware of no, it seems to be a, a much calmer place now.
0: And in terms of of development, this is a very uh, underdeveloped country, uh, as I say, one of the poorest in Asia. Did you get a sense of uh, new buildings, new infrastructure in the course of the last few years?
2: Yes, it is a very poor country. Um, There is a huge, but there's also a, a huge amount of infrastructure going on, particularly from China, They're funding a lot of roads. They're also funding a railway, which is going to go through the whole country. Um, There is a lot of uh, hydroelectric plants being built at questionable um, cost to the environment in which they're being built. And in terms of people's houses, we were in a lot of villages where they're wholly constructed of wood. There are not that many kind of brick houses outside the capital people still live a very rural agricultural life in a great percentage of the country and
0: give us a sense then of of that to visit the countryside and, and the scale uh, particularly of the unexploded ordnance uh, challenge uh, you were there talking to NGOs who were working on, on clearance but also on the rehabilitation of, of victims
2: so they it's really really difficult to get your head around the statistics to do with all of the unexploded ordnance in Laos. So between 1964 and 1973 um, the US dropped 270 million bombs on Laos and of those 80 million did not explode so they're still in the ground all over the country and the on any given day in 2017 as as has been the case for some years, there are up to 3,000 people every single day who are out with metal detectors and then out with literally spades and buckets excavating what they find. And at the end of the day, as in the case of the organization that we went out with, they explode the ordinance in place at the end of the day. And it, it is the scale of this that is really staggering and Lao is very much a rural country still, so and people mostly make their living from the land. So people literally don't know what's in the ground. There can be unexploded ordnance in playgrounds and people's rice fields um, on the way to school. So sometimes just a few inches under the surface.
0: And we're seeing effectively a continuing toll from the from that American bombing, continuing every day. So, do we know how many uh, people die every year from unexploded ordnance?
2: Well, during the, the course of the bombing, fifty thousand people died, which is ten percent of the population. And since since then, twenty thousand people have um, been killed or maimed, and which is a just a staggering kind of statistic because it it also contributes to sort of a culture of fear. I mean, people are constantly aware of the dangers of the of literally the, the ground that they walk on. And because people need to be physically able to make a living, to lose a foot or the use of your arm can be the difference between, you know, not being able to make a living for your family And and making a living for your family. So it's not just the whole horrific psychological impact of of losing a limb. It's got a really direct economic consequence as well for people.
0: You have to be able to get into the fields, to harvest the fields and the fields, most of them are still not cleared yet. You have absolutely no idea what you're walking into every day.
2: No, so people, farmers don't plough very deep um, because the two reasons, two main reasons that bombs will explode is um, impact. So if, if, say, a child picks it up and drops it, then impact is going to make it explode. Um, If it's being, again, if it's being hit, say, by a a plough or a spade, and then the other is heat, um, people... In villages like fires on the ground and if there is something underneath the ground you can't see, the heat is going to make it go off.
0: I remember a few years ago when I was in Cambodia as, as part of a UN group, uh, we were given um, fairly grisly classes in mind awareness uh, by uh, the UN, um, uh, the descriptions of bouncing bombs that jumped out of the earth hidden bombs in plastic bags hanging from trees. And I vividly remember the Cambodian leaflet, which explained what to do if one ended up in a minefield, which finished with the words, wear plenty of amulets and pray to ancestors. I I take it you were on a similar course this time.
2: Well, I don't think amulets would do you much good. I had to give my blood type before I was ever allowed to go out with the uh, mine clearance company. Um, and at our safety briefing before we were allowed to go into the rice field we were told how many minutes it would take if if um, if there was an explosion to get us to the nearest hospital so it was 45 minutes so I think I put my faith in hospitals rather than amulets but it was certainly a new um, a new request from me on a reporting assignment to be asked to give my blood group in advance of doing the reporting.
0: Um, you were also talking to survivors uh, who were challenged with not only coping with infirmity and and an inability to to work, but also a sense, maybe a psychological sense, of worthlessness and, and fear that they're a burden on families and burden on their communities. This is how how are people uh, addressing this?
2: Well, in such a poor country as Laos, in a developing country, there is no mental health um, system, and even the. Even the physical work I saw on people who had had amputations looked, I know nothing about medicine, but it looked really crude to me. So there is, you know, there is basic support in terms of um, amputations, but when it comes to mental health, there's there's nothing provided by the government. So people are completely dependent on the work that NGOs um, do. And we went out with world education and they support um, survivors. And one of the things they do is they do kind of peer to peer um, counseling. So they put, they put people who've had, uh, uh, you know, similar horrible experiences together, such as one man we interviewed who, who really has had very little of his face left because a bomb had gone off while he was burning rubbish on behalf of the village. And he didn't leave his hut for years, let alone his village. But um, World Education sent somebody to him to talk to him, a man who had been who had also been grievously injured and they were able to talk to each other. And he he is now I mean, he was able to talk to me as a reporter and to be photographed by my colleague Brenda Fitzsimons. And he has come a really long way in his mental health. Um, he was an extraordinary person. But the other man that we spoke to who had been blinded last October when he picked up an unexploded um, casing in a rice field and brought it home because he's told us he wanted the metal to make a knife with. Um, he is 25. He lives with his wife, his daughter. His wife is pregnant. He lives with his, his wife's parents and her grandparents. And he actually was the head of household. So he was doing all the earning And he now can't, he's blind, so he can't do anything other than wash the dishes and feed the chickens, which in the scale of things of what they need is pretty much useless. And they have, um, I was told privately by the organization who brought us there that they had been approached by the in-laws to see would they take him away so that they wouldn't have to, he was useless to them now because he couldn't provide a living so i had to conduct this interview with um this man via translation with 10 members of his family all listening in many of them who did not want him to be there anymore so it's it's the consequences of a war that happened 40 years ago is still going on today in all sorts of horrible and complex ways.
0: It's extraordinary, really. Uh, did you get any sense while you were there that Laos is getting on top of these problems? Is it, or is it still very much stuck in in underdevelopment and in a life dominated by this, uh, this crisis still?
2: Yes, it is. It's, it is the probably single biggest thing to... You know, making it um, a more, I, I don't really want to say developed country, but it's it's just a huge legacy problem. And it should be noted that the United States never apologized for the carpet bombing that they conducted on Laos. Obama visited there last autumn. Um, he didn't apologize either, but he did pledge what was reported as 90 million towards clearance, um, which sounds good, except... The US already were donating $15 million a year towards clearance, so this actually is over three years, so it's actually just doubling it, so instead of 15 per year, it is due to be 30 for the next three years. That money hasn't been paid yet because there is controversy about how it's going to be spent, Um, so there is negotiation going on between the Loatian government and the Americans, the Americans would like it to be mostly spent on a technical survey to try and determine how much of the rest of the country still needs to be cleared. And the Loatians are not entirely in agreement with this and they have a different timescale for how long it's going to take this clearance to go on. They're talking about decades and at some point, it has to be finite. Um, so there is, so as I understand it, that money yet hasn't yet been spent, and there is a bit of a, a question mark about whether the third year will be forthcoming at all, given the present incumbent in the White House.
0: Thank you, Rosita. Rosita Boland's main report from Lars, her trip, which was supported by the Simon Cumbers Fund and the Department of Foreign Affairs, can be read in Saturday's Irish Times. Thanks to Lara Marlowe and Rosita Boland and to our producer, Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.